Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California for our program today. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. We want to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation. This program is part of our Good Lit series that is underwritten by the Osher Foundation. Now, at the club, we are producing hundreds of programs a year, and that includes both online programs like this as well as in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org slash events to see our upcoming lineup. And in fact, head over to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS to see Michelle Miao show programs, both that are upcoming as well as past ones where you can get audio and video of our past talks. Now, I want to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of the Michelle Miao show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. Michelle. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to all of you who are joining us today. Our discussion today is focused on the book with honor and integrity, transgender troops tell their stories. So with us for the conversation are both the editors, Mel Emser Herbert and Bree Fram. Bree, Mel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ditto that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, like I said to you before the program started, I'm so honored to have a conversation about the book and then have a conversation about, you know, um, uh, with both of you, but some of the names that have been featured in the book, we've been able to interview. And so I totally geeked out and felt so proud of myself. Uh, the book features many transgender service members and their firsthand account of what it's like to serve in the military for the United States. And so I thought a good place to start would be with the both of you and having you share your own stories, your own firsthand account, uh, yeah, especially Brie, right? Your stories in the book. Um, but but anything you want to share as far as your story it could be coming out or it could be, well, uh, being a part of this book. So we'll start with Brie. Well, I think it's actually best when we frame it this way to start with Mel and the genesis of how the book came about. And then it works into a bit of my story. So Mel, maybe better to for you to lead this one off. Sure. Um, I, and I'm hearing two very different things there. One is kind of the personal framework. So I'll try to say very quickly, um, although, you know, brain old, I enlisted, hold on to your hats, in 1978 and served on active duty in the army. And um, it's funny, I just shredded a lot of my materials and stuff last week. And I have the, my, I had my, my copy of my original enlistment form. And I remember that it had the question about marijuana I think it also had a question about homosexuality. And obviously I did not disclose that at that time I identified as lesbian, but I went in the service. And I, as I said, in some notes, I was preparing for another event I'm doing. I initially served pre don't ask, don't tell. So this was a time when each branch had their own regulations and there were loopholes that, um, that when I first went in existed, those were tightened while I was on active duty. Um, when okay, it was right around uh, Carter Reagan's shift. So, so my, I go way back in terms of my own experience, you know, and I, someone I went to basic training with, with was discharged um, for being a lesbian. And I, in, uh, when Clinton came into office, I was in graduate school and I was the state coordinator in Arizona for what was then the human rights campaign fund efforts to lift the ban. So that's, I, I, we'd be here all day if I went all through that. So I'll just say that um, that really um, positioned me for the scholarly work I did as a sociologist, which began 
being centered on women in the military. And then based on what I found in my dissertation work really morphed into focusing on sexuality. So that's what most of my career was centered on. And around, um, it was 2010, one of the highlights of my career was serving as an expert witness in a federal case challenging Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But honestly, I was ready to put it to bed. So I was glad for the repeal for personal reasons. I was also glad because I wanted to move into doing something else, you know, as a, as a scholar. And so I did that for a while. And then in 2014, I was approached about contributing a piece to a book, and they wanted to focus on gender, um, specifically women. And I said, hmm, I wanted to do something on the, the issue of trans people in the military because the Palm Center was starting to do some things. And I thought, I want to look at this. So I wrote a, a kind of very, I won't say dry, I'll say straightforward piece, looking at military regulations because there was no, and I think this is a really important point, there was no regulation that stated transgender people are not permitted. There was me primarily medical regulations that were used to exclude trans people. So I did that. And then, uh, and Bree's heard this way too many times, but in fall of 17, um, I went to a little film festival here in St. Paul that is called Gender Real, R-E-E-L. And the focus that year was a set of Part, part of it was a set of films about transmilitary service. Now, to situate us much more recently, this was fall of 17. So in the summer of 2016, under the Obama administration, was, woo, we're going to have inclusive service. 13 months later, President Trump tweeted, no, we're not. And as I sat in that auditorium in October, I thought, what are people doing? You know, I, 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 I'm not a fan of the cliche, but I always want to go right to toothpaste tube. People came out. People started transitioning, doing what they could. You, you, you can't roll it back on people. And I was just, I'm so removed now from that environment. I kept thinking, how are people managing this? And I thought, I wonder if I can get some transgender service members to talk with me. And I, I was able to talk with about 12 people, one of whom was Bree. And I ended up putting that together and just, it was just a short journal article, but I kept wanting to do more. And I thought, what can I do? But I didn't want it to be, I'm bringing my social science lens on your life. I was like, no, no, I'm, I don't have to make anybody happy. Senior faculty, I can do what I want. I want to do something more interesting than, you know, straight out. And I didn't want to make people the subject of my academic inquiry. And I remembered a book that in 2005 I had been interviewed for that ended up being a series of sometimes they just included the straight out transcript and sometimes converted it to prose. And that was really the seed for me to say, hmm, maybe I can get trans service members to contribute their own story so that it's their voice, their words. And I thought about this and, and got really jazzed about it. And I reached out to Bree. Um, having been so impressed from our conversation, I thought, I just had a sense. And let me just say, was not wrong. And Bree said, yeah, I'll come along. This, yeah, I don't know what she really thought, but she agreed. And basically that led to us kind of starting to put together what it would look like. And I'll stop there. But that was really how the book came to be, was these kind of little pieces. And ultimately, I wanted to be able to, uh, the way I've started characterizing it is be a conduit 
for getting the stories out rather than gathering data and thinking of people as research subjects. Hope that gives you a, a bit of a picture. And I'll, I'll jump in there with how that connects with my story, though. I, like Mel, if I want to tell the story, it's 45 minutes. Uh, so we'll give you the, the short, short version. And if there are places to dive into, happy to expand on those in greater detail. Uh, but I joined the service uh, after graduation from college in 2001. Uh, I was looking for civilian jobs and we were attacked. And my worldview changed. Uh, the military had not been in my plans up until that point. Uh, but from that moment on, I'm, like, I'm joining the Air Force. Uh, this is what I need to do with my life because it's something that would allow me to give back, to be part of something greater than myself, and help protect and defend the freedoms that I care so much about and that previous generations granted to me. So that became something very important in my life. But even then, though I may not have had the words to describe it, to understand it, uh, there was a part of myself I knew I was going to have to keep hidden in order to serve my country. And it wasn't until 2016 uh, that Mel mentioned that I was able to come out as trans, which I did on the day that the ban was officially dropped, literally seconds after the Secretary of Defense finished speaking, announcing the end of it. So that's how my story kind of came into it, allowed me to connect with Mel from that point, and then expand into not only the work that we've done here, uh, but my work as part of SPARTA, which is an advocacy and education nonprofit that supports uh, on transgender service members, provides them a way to connect with one another, realize they're not alone, and to do advocacy on their behalf. To, and so telling these stories was absolutely critical because we found more than anything, it is these stories. It is this notion that we're human uh, and we serve for the same reasons as everyone else. We do the same jobs that everyone else does and we're valued members of the team that resonates. And if there's anything I would hope someone takes away from the book is that there's no one way to be trans. There's no one way to be trans in the military, but they're all valid and they're all human and they're all serving. May, uh, Bree just told us why she joined. You mentioned you joined back in 1978. Why did you join the military? And, and how long did you think you would stay in? Were you looking for a career in it? Or was this, uh, I'll do this for a while and, and do some. Okay. Like I tell my students, I, I'm pretty transparent. So I, I was an undergraduate in Washington, D.C. And um, I came out at that time really via the two now long gone, but great lesbian bars in Southeast D.C., which were filled with women in the military. And I had always been interested, even when I was really little, interested in law enforcement. And you have to realize this was 78. It had only been, I believe it was five years that women had been able to serve in the New York City police force. With not, they, they'd had, remember, matrons, but just regular old cops. You know, that was the era I was in. And I grew up just, you know, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. You couldn't be in the FBI. You know, the, the um, military academies open to women while I was an undergraduate. Just just giving a little frame of reference here for those who may not remember. And um, I wanted to do something related to law enforcement. 
And then I found out, and I don't remember how, but I found out that I could be a military police officer in the military. And I, I'll skip the, but I, I looked at each branch and made decisions and decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look army. And I initially um, talked to a recruiter because I'd gotten some background information. But I talked to a recruiter and I said, I want to be in mil- military police corps and I want to go to Germany, what well, then West Germany. And they said, oh, as a female, you get to pick one or the other. We can't guarantee both. And I said, okay, thanks. And I called the next recruiting office and told them. And they said, oh, sure. Yeah, we can do that. And so I got a guarantee for both. And but here's, the, here's why I was laughing. The reason I wanted to go to West Germany is that I was involved with someone at the time who just gotten orders to go to Germany. <laughs> and so that's actually why I wanted a guarantee. Now, we broke up before I got there. <laughs> but that is, in fact, why I ended up choosing to serve overseas. Um, and I, at the time I wasn't necessarily thinking career. I knew though that I just graduated. I wanted to enlist because I, and I don't remember where I got this, but I knew that if I decided to stay and I wanted to eventually be an officer, no offense to Brie, I wanted to have enlisted experience behind me. I wanted to do that first before going in, you know, as a second Lieutenant and ultimately, um, so I did my three years. I got out. Um, I was in the reserves and I was going through all I, all the hoops. So I ended up going to Fort Benning and got, getting my commission. And I was planning on going back on active duty. And I talked to a recruiter who knew that I was a lesbian who said, let's think about your goals <laughs> and basically said to me, um, I think you should stay in the reserves. Um, you know, I don't remember the details of the conversation anymore, but basically talked about really what he was seeing and stuff and discouraged me from going back on active duty. And so I ended up staying in the reserves for quite a number of years after that, instead of going back on active duty, which, which had been at that point, what I had intended to do. Was his, not to get, get too far into this, but I mean, do you think he was, do you think he thought he was actually helping you in that? And do you feel like you were helped or do you really wish you had stayed in? Given what was happening at that time, um, I really think he he felt he was looking out for me. And I knew so many women and lesbians in the military that I don't think he was at all misguided. And this this would have been um, this was around 1985. So, yeah, I got my commission late in 85. So that was right around then. Um, And it's so hard to say, you know, if I had done it, I would. I mean, let's be really practical. I'd have been retired for a really long time now. I might have some nice coin coming in, you know, but I made, went a different path and it's worked out really well for me. And when I wrote my application for graduate school, what I wrote various, and this was the in 86, I said, um, cause you had to describe your intended research agenda. And I said, I want to study issues of gender in the military. And so I was, you know, I went down the other fork of the path, but the way they came together has, I think, worked out well for me. And, and Brie, you did tell us why you joined. I'm curious about, did you go in, you said you were kind of inspired by, you know, the, the attack and, and patriotism. Was, were you thinking you were going to be in there and for that emergency or were you looking at it at, already at the beginning as, I guess what I should just say, when did you kind of realize this was going to be a career? Because um, when we hear a lot of these stories, we get, you know, we hear different, people have different 
goals, but really the folks who are ready, I think, to to kind of stand up and fight for their rights are ones who are hoping to be there long time and as well as to make it good for other people who are there long time. So what was your thinking? Uh, I went in with eyes open to a world of possibilities. I didn't think I was going in with a sure plan of do four and get out or do 20 plus and and stay in. Uh, But what I did see at the time was this was a path where I could do the things that I cared about, you know, for others and to do the, the things that we already covered of, you know, hey, this is bigger than myself. But it also was a personal path to fulfillment, too, because I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, and the military, through being an astronautical engineer, you know, the path was clear. Go to test pilot school, be a flight test engineer, then apply to NASA and, and be an astronaut. Turns out along the way, I had a little issue with my eye where they had to seal a cut uh, a partially torn retina. And when I then applied to uh, test pilot school, he had to get a physical and they're like, mm, had you already been qualified, this is fine and people keep flying. But because you're not perfect and we have enough perfect applicants, uh, don't bother. Uh, so that dream kind of changed there. And, you know, maybe it was a good thing because a few weeks after uh, my wife and I went to a balloon fiesta in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they had one of these exhibits set up where you get in that big thing that spins you around in the gyroscope. I puked all the way home and learned maybe I've got a little touch of motion sickness and might not have done so well. Uh, but I still hope to, you know, maybe in 10, 20 years, buy a ticket, see Earth from orbit, uh, and make that dream a reality because that's still really important to me. Uh, But it turns out the military uh, offered me so many opportunities to do some amazing things, meet incredible people, and have experiences I never would have any other way. And I hit 20 years just a couple of weeks ago uh, for my time in service, and it still feels more like a beginning uh, than something that's nearing the end because there's still so many things out there uh, that excite me. And now being part of the Space Force from the beginning, what an opportunity uh, to help create and shape an inclusive military culture that values all of us for who we are uh, and enables everyone to reach their full potential. So didn't start that way, but turned into an amazing career. And I am still excited about what's to come. Hmm. Wow. It's a, it's a whole lot of hope um, and excitement, of course. That's what you mentioned. Mel gave us an overview of the history of the military policies that impacted the L, the G, the B, and of course, you know, the T, our transgender community. Uh, but let's let's fast forward to those weird times when policy changes were announced via Twitter <laughs> and, and the Donald Trump administration and that ban. I mean, you know, what was going on? It, it, it Like you both described specific relationships that acknowledge high ranking officials in the military uh, were, you know, they acknowledge LGBTQ service members, right? Like it wasn't like this thing where it was non-existent to them and, and we're, we're serving it together. And so then you have this bit, this ban, this all of a sudden ban. I mean, what do you think happened there? Where obviously Donald Trump, I don't know. I'm not going to try to get into his psyche or mindset and it all, all political, but 
want to hear from both of you, especially Bree, like what were the experiences during those times serving when that ban went into effect? Yeah, we can certainly still speculate about why it happened. Uh, and there's a thousand different reasons, some more plausible than, than others. But when it happened, and there are a lot of these descriptions in the book from people who are currently serving of, of what that was like to serve through that day, I think in general, the reaction was simply shock. Where did this come from? It, it, yes, people asking, why is this happening? But what now? What next? Is a tweet an order? Is that direction to the Department of Defense that they have to turn into policy and then carry out? So it was just this bolt from the blue where we had to figure out, okay, what happens next? What do we tell people? What do we tell the people that are currently serving about what to do? Um, everyone was looking for guidance. And the best thing we as Sparta leadership could offer is, look, a tweet is not recognized as an order. There's some time, there's some paperwork that's going to have to be done before anything happens. So what is the best thing any of you out there serving today can do? Well, it is lace up your boots, go to work and get the job done. Prove you belong just as you have been doing for your entire career. Make them drag you kicking and screaming from the service you love, the people you love, and all the things that matter to you by accomplishing the mission and continuing to do so until you are no longer able. And we did. Uh, it was truly incredible the resilience that transgender service members showed in that time frame and with all the roller coaster of policy, uh, court challenges, and so on that happened over the next several years. Um, my hat's off to the service members that made it through these times, and many of whom are still serving today, uh, which I think really shows what do they care about? And it is that legacy of service and doing something that's important to them, despite an official government position saying, you are not wanted. May, can you kind of set the context and, or the background in all of this? How many transgender uh, I guess, active service members do we know of, uh, as well as veterans. We talked before the program a bit about some numbers that are out there and that are cited in the book. But, you know, for our, for our viewers and listeners, what are the numbers that we're talking about and how confident are we on those numbers? Were you directing that to me? I couldn't, I wasn't sure at the beginning. Um, well, Brie may have, uh, uh, even though we talked earlier about the fact that we don't really have the data, um, I think there are probably some people who have been trying to, to tweak it a bit because I remember talking, uh, there was a period of time where the number that I was hearing for active service was about 1,500. And Brie, I think at one point we were talking about that number may have ha having dropped a bit because we were in that window of time where people were having to make decisions about, you know, if, were they going to renew and that kind of thing, but yet nobody was coming in. So that's the best I know. And I'll, I'll leave it to Bree to jump in on that. In terms of the bigger picture, um, I've seen most frequently the number of 15,000 thrown around. If you're talking about everybody who is serving in some capacity, active reserve, et cetera. Um, and I think the, the number for across all time, Gosh, Brie, correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say the number that comes to mind is 154,000 if you look at, at all veterans. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating to look back, and VA has data uh, where the Department of Defense does not, uh, and they can see that trans people have historically served at twice the rate of their cisgender counterparts, and there are hundreds of thousands of transgender veterans. It's it's amazing, but the estimates for active service most range from ten to fifteen thousand people on active guard or, or reserve duty. Uh, the number that Mel put out about uh, 15, 1600, that was the number that came out in the window between policy being open for people to serve and the door closing again with the Trump ban on service. So that number was found through medical records of this many people had in those intervening years come out and got this diagnosis on their medical records. And so that probably dropped over the next couple or next period of time because no one knew could come out, no one knew could get in, and you did have your normal attrition rates of people leaving the service. So until uh, President Biden came in and opened the door again to service. You know there were, you know that many of us roughly that were out and serving openly. But that larger number still stands because those other people were still serving. They just weren't out uh, for various reasons uh, that you know vary from individual to individual. And if I could just add something for the purposes of people who might be listening for whom this is just new information, I want to clarify when we talk about the number of veterans that, and I want to kind of highlight because I think it often gets overlooked, one of the chapters in the book are the stories of six people who served, who didn't serve during this period of time that was what piqued my interest, but had been in the military before and identify as trans now. And so when we talk about thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people who served at one time, it's we're not saying that every last one of those people identified to themselves as trans at that point of service, but that they do now. And then there's everything, if you think of it as a spectrum, there's everything from the person who went in knowing that they identified as trans, but that they could never say anything to people who had no clue, but now as a veteran have come out as trans and so trans veteran. I just, I didn't want people mistaking that we were saying, and there've been thousands of people secretly serving, you know, that's not the picture that we're trying to paint. Yeah, no, great point, Mel. And I was fascinated by those stories really of the folks who did end up leaving, you know, the military, uh, just believing that it was never going to be a space in which they could be themselves or then coming out and identifying as trans later on brings me to this question of where we're at today and, you know, President Biden uh, changing or reversing the Trump ban. But out of that time period where there was that ban, there were also these narratives that were in place, right? These are um, the arguments that the reason why we need to have this ban is that transgender troops cost the military tons of money because of the, you know, the health care that we would need to, to offer and many, many, many more um, false narratives, so where are we at with those narratives now? They just kind of gone away in space. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody, nobody took him seriously anyway during the ban. And then, you know, or now during the Biden administration and transgender troops can serve openly. And we're now moving in the right direction and implementing policy and training and you know, all these things that I think the military would need in order to truly make it um, an inclusive and effective culture for transgender service members. 
your thoughts? Let's start with Mel. Sure. Um, it, it has me think, I mean, one of the things I was thinking and then quickly going, oh my gosh, would that be dangerous? <laughs> I don't really think it would be, but I, one of the things that could in theory happen is that the information that was somewhat speculative, we now have a window of time where we can look back and figure out things like that, you know, the medical cost was a huge thing. And all the, the people who really drilled down on that said, mm, it's so tiny. And they came up with very specific numbers, but it was like, no, 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 this is just making something out of nothing. But it, it again, I, I kind of, I tell my students, I said, I've never been accused of being an optimist. So that's where I'm coming from. I think that's where Brie and I are opposite ends of the poles. But I think we could probably get that now. And I, I really do think optimistically that what we'd find is that that was a big nothing, that the, the numbers are just not there. You know, um, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of that first book chapter I mentioned in one of the pieces of the the medical angle that I found so amazing was the very specific argument about being able to be deployed, being able to serve elsewhere. Oh, gosh, we can't support you. Oh, gosh, we can't do that. Our system can't handle it. And um, someone named Diane Mazur, who was with the Palm Center, did some, in my view, really great work looking at the degree to which much of the same care was already provided to cisgender service members. So the military healthcare environment was already trained, prepared, could could do these things. And then the one that I really like to always kind of in my classes get into, it's it's very brief, but it's the fact that there are certain treatments that were available, for example, to cisgender women because of their medical conditions and yet were denied to trans service members. Same exact thing. So, so tell me that that's about something more than bias and exclusion when that same care is already provided. And I'll stop there and kick it to Brie. I'm sure she has something to add. Yeah, you talked about the arguments against transgender service. And it's fascinating as we dive into them to look at the fact that they were the same arguments levied against African-Americans. They were the same arguments levied against women serving. They were the same arguments levied against lesbian, gay, and bisexual people serving. They were the same arguments levied against women serving in combat after that. It is this recycled set of fallacies over and over again against what's the next narrow minority that we are including in the military because they are going to disrupt unit cohesion. They are physically or mentally incapable of serving in one way or another, or they, as Mel talked about, are medically incapable of serving. And each of those groups, as they were incorporated into the military, proved not only just how wrong those arguments were, but how the military got stronger and better from incorporating them. So the arguments are not only disingenuous, they can potentially be damaging because the way we are going to fight and win wars in the future is with brain power. 
And if those brains happen to be in a trans body or in any other body that has been historically marginalized, we need to be an environment that welcomes them in and that takes advantage of that brain power that is going to enable us to fight and win in the 21st century. Mel, you, you mentioned uh, no one's accused you of being an optimist. Um, so let me be even more pessimist. We, we saw the Obama administration very late, admittedly, out of, out of its eight-year term in, in office, but finally, you know, make the decision to uh, allow open transgender service. Uh, we saw the Trump administration change that. We saw the Biden administration change that. Um, in 2024, we could have a President Kemp or a President uh, DeSantis, or we might have a Biden uh, again, or maybe Harris, who knows? But I mean... What is there a feeling within the 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 service that okay things I'm asking this poorly have things advanced far enough where you couldn't as you say put any of that toothpaste back in or um, could someone pass the you know again do a tweet and uh, change that policy again I mean could this ping pong back and forth until eventually we get to stability on it. I guess I would ask each of you that, because I'm curious on what you think. Well, there's what can happen. That, yeah, it, I clicked it and it didn't, didn't go. Um, there's what can happen, and then there's, I think, what's perhaps likely to happen. Because as you described, it could boom, 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 right? Now, one way to defeat that would be, and it again, you know, Things still can change, but there are levels or gradations of difficulty. You can change policy more readily than you can change law and on and on, right? Um, but here's where I'm going to contradict myself and put on my, my little optimist hat. I actually like to think that the longer we go with trans people serving and being in you know, positions, whether that's, you know, a junior enlisted person just doing their sting everything every day or somebody in a much more elevated position or what have you, people are getting to see that they are working with trans people who do their jobs, who do it well, and who make a valuable contribution. And where I get hung up is if you look at a particular administration or the makeup of Congress, they can do all kinds of things. And I'm not convinced that they necessarily would listen to military leadership if they said, well, please, you're going to hurt us. You're going to mess us up if you create the situation. There's an interplay, and, and I'd love to hear what Bree thinks about this, where Congress could do all this stuff and the military could just kind of do the slow roll. Now, I don't know how that would really play out, but I, I like to have a degree of confidence that every day that passes is going to make it more difficult to roll this back. I will again pull this back from that historical perspective and that as we talk about the integration of all those groups into the service, we need to note that it's been done by executive order, not by act of Congress. So a future president still has the ability with a stroke of a pen to change policy on this. Uh, unless Congress passes a forward-looking 
a bill to guarantee the opportunity because service is just, it's an opportunity. It's not a right. None of us have the right to serve, but Congress could pass something to say we have that opportunity. Um, and to a lot of people, we're still the boogeyman. There are rumblings both in Congress and in potential future presidential candidates that, yes, they would want to turn back the clock, uh, that we remain a burden on the service despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, but like Mel said, I remain hopeful uh, that it does get harder and harder with each passing day of us doing our jobs. And having a military without trans people, my dream is that that would be just as unconscionable as having a military without any of the minority groups uh, that have served with such distinction over the years. And it is that day-to-day -day work that's going to get us there and change the attitudes. So trans people, just by serving and existing, create the conditions for that. But you have the ability for a politician, despite what the opinions are, to change that quickly. And it also takes us back in a weird way to how I look at the action that President Trump took with his tweets. And you might think it odd, but in an ironic way, I say, thank you, President Trump, because what he did was shine such a spotlight on our service to show that people serving both at home and deployed all around the world were doing their jobs, that he changed public opinion and military opinion. Because when he tweeted about 50% of the public and the military were in favor of trans people being openly able to serve. Two months later, because all our stories got out there, those numbers were around 70%. Two years later, they were in the high 80s. So it's crazy to think just how much perception changed leading back to that tweet. We're still there, but it doesn't mean that there aren't people that still believe I and people like me have a second head growing out of our shoulders, uh, that I can't return fire in a foxhole because I'm too busy thinking about my gender identity and what I'm going to wear that night, or that my transgender men uh, friends are going to charge and get everyone killed because they're roid monsters, which nothing could be further from the truth. People just perpetuate these outlandish stereotypes that people who wear the uniform break every day that they meet someone new. Let's talk about the current political environment. I think that in the last, um, at least in the last two years, when you look at, you know, statewide elections, the types of bills that are being proposed in some of these states are pretty scary when you talk about transgender rights. And again, we see it's like this has happened historically speaking, in the LGBTQ movement where trans issues are isolated from the rest of the movement. And I, you know, I look back at the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and how so much had gone into, there was so much excitement, so much buzz that the, the repeal of that, that gay and lesbian service members could serve openly. What I didn't understand was like, why didn't we just easily include, you know, transgender service members in, into all of that? And so the big question is just now today um, in both of your perspectives, folks who serve for this country, I mean, put your life on the line for this country. And yet you have to go up against, you know, other folks who have a vote, have a voice against your, your exact identity. I mean, how are you, having conversations with people around this? Because I think your perspective is different from like someone like me, 
Barky talks to my neighbor about transgender rights, but what I'm saying is going to be completely different than what you say. We'll start with Bree. I think those conversations inside the military tend to be, can you get the job done? You know, it's, do I look to my left? I look to my right. Uh, are those people supporting me? And we're all moving in the same direction towards the same goal. And that's an easy one. So it's pretty rare that the conversations are at a level where it's, you don't matter because you know what, you're my teammate and we're working for the same things. Now, sure, there are pockets out there where that may matter or there may be bigotry uh, expressed directly. And people continue to suffer from that in certain instances. But by and large, we're working for the same things. Uh, when you talk about the, the current uh, environment uh, outside of the military and how that may affect us, I think a lot of it is tied in also with wider uh, issues around reproductive rights and other things of this battle between federal and state law. And how does that set up to affect military people that don't have a choice over what state they are assigned to? And if like a uh, recent bill introduced in the Oklahoma legislature passes that says people under 26 can't get treated uh, in relation to transgender care, and that's criminal, what do you do for the trans soldier that is sent to Oklahoma uh, and is set to receive ongoing care? Uh, how do you engage with that from a federal versus a state's rights perspective, uh, who has jurisdiction over some of these things? It's setting us up for some you know, struggles and challenges we thought we had settled in the Civil War. Uh, so it's really interesting and, and honestly frightening parallels uh, to where we've been in the past. Let me take a left turn here and, and just ask a different question of each of you. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Mel, you, you were going to. Yeah, th there was, that was such a big question that Michelle posed. And I had jotted down because there was a particular piece of it that I wanted to respond to. And we, you basically said, why didn't we just take care of this back when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed? And there were two things that popped into my head. One, which maybe we never like to talk about, is the infighting within what I will call the LGBTQ community. Um, back around, around that time, there was a big fight about whether or not we should be doing anything about the military, because I remember being at one march where it was the, the gay veteran, and I say because it, it was literally said gay veterans contingent with the um, um, Veterans for Peace behind. And so there's a lot of infighting. And then in the beyond the military issue, there continues to be infighting around the inclusion of trans people within what I'll call the movement. So there was that piece of it. But on the more practical part, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was federal law. It did not address trans people. And we probably all and anyone listening knows how the government works to some degree. If you're going to repeal a law, you're repealing that law. And that's where the work is going. So to have done anything at that point in time around mili trans military service would have been a completely different trajectory in terms of civics. You know, what would have to happen? Because it, you, you, you couldn't, I don't see how you could really have merged those well because of the process back from, um, I always think of, the, what is it, Schoolhouse Rock, you know, the bill, da, 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 blah, blah. You got to re repeal the law. Now, it could have been a bigger part of the conversation and the push, but I just think that it wasn't going to happen 
in what seems like so, so long ago. The, this book has been out for a while. What has the reaction been? What sort of feedback? And I assume from different audiences, you might have been getting different types of uh, feedback. I think we've gotten basically nothing but positive feedback. Or if there is negative feedback, it doesn't come to us. You know, Certainly there would be people opposed to even reading this book. So the people that are likely going to pick it up and have a negative view of it would never pick it up. Um, I would love, though, if they did, because I would love to then have a conversation about it. And hey, did this open your eyes in a way to something? Uh, but if we do events and, and maybe you have someone who's like, oh, I just popped in and the general reaction tends to be, wow, that was really eye-opening uh, because you know, we can look back at, you know, as little as 10 years ago and this tiny, tiny fraction of Americans would say, I know a trans person. To think of the fraction of Americans that can say, I know a trans person in the military, so much smaller. So anything we can do to continue opening the aperture on our stories I think is is incredibly valuable. And we tend to get that real positive feedback of this is something I never knew about, uh, but it was fascinating. And I think, I, I feel like you did a couple on your own, but there were a couple of programs that we did a year ago after the book's release. And we were like, mm, you know, kind of reading the bios and figure. And my recollection is that even people now first of all the, the fact that they agreed to do it they clearly weren't trying to set us up and that kind of thing but i don't know brie if you can if you remember any of that because there it feel like there were people who wouldn't have let me say organically been oh fabulous but who in listening were kind of like oh yeah do, do you have anything concrete to put to what i'm kind of what i just have that that memory uh, i think we did one with a, a Fox affiliate, uh, Fox radio affiliate, and it's really hard to hate to someone's face, even if it's on video uh, or, or via you know, a, a phone call. It's much harder uh, when the shield of anonymity is removed. So I think when we do engage with people who may uh, not be you know, in favor of, of what we're talking about, they tend to at least be respectful. Uh, and I think an instructive view of this is uh, back when there was a hearing at the Capitol um, in the House Armed Services Committee held a hearing on trans military service, uh, only one Republican showed up. Uh, and he was respectful, like, uh, you know, thank you for your service, all that. But the others didn't even show uh, so, cause it's hard to take the political position that people might have and tell it to someone sitting right in front of you. Um, so respect tends to be the order of the day, even when you may have opposing positions on this. And I think we try and engender that cause we're happy to talk with anyone. As long as you're, you want to have a respectful conversation, we love that opportunity to educate uh, and just tell these stories because the stories are so important and so relatable to anyone. I was particularly drawn emotionally to the service members who talked about just having to leave the military altogether and making that sacrifice. And then those who were uh, discharged. I, I wonder, you know, just where they're at today. And if, 
like if they wanted to serve, they wanted to come back or is there an opportunity, you know, for them? Uh, I just really feel for the people who are really affected during those times in which uh, there is severe discrimination against trans service members. Do you hear from, you know, some of the stories that were submitted to keep in touch? Uh, we do. And there are people that, that left and have rejoined the service uh, and are able to serve openly and authentically. And that's amazing. There are others still fighting to get in. Uh, but if you look at the, the long historical record, a lot of people who left um, under negative reasons, uh, you know, they may have got a code on their record that says you can't reenlist. So there's been a concerted effort over the past couple of years uh, among the wider LGBTQ community uh, to advocate for corrections to military records for people who were really thrown out for being LGBTQ, but some other reason was generated to get them out. And that's what is, was on their paperwork. So I think the community has done a real good job coming together and trying to reduce the burden, not only on you know people who are just trying to access veterans benefits, but also... <clears throat> excuse me, for that community that wants to get back in and they want to have another opportunity to serve, um, as long as they can still meet standards, that door is open. You read my mind because I was just sitting here thinking, then there's this thing called aging. <laughs> and depending on when you were put out, the chip is sailed. <laughs> I can't make it past 20 push-ups, so... Um, John... Um, were there any stories you maybe wanted to, to include in the book, but that people didn't want to tell or uh, you just didn't have space for it? Uh, anything there? Well, we were actually, I think we were incredibly fortunate. And I won't walk you through the process, but everybody, did, correct me if I'm wrong, but everybody who reached out to us who wanted to participate and persisted was included. We had a few. We had a few people who had started out wanting to be involved, and then life interfered, and you know, stepped back. Um, we had a couple people who had great stories to tell, didn't want to actually sit down and do the writing, which can be a really scary prospect. And what we did was to interview those people, and then convert the interview to prose for them, and then they were able to read it and edit it and give feedback and such. But we did not have, we didn't set up the kind of process and we didn't have, say, a hundred people where we then had to choose. And part of that's by design. There's a reason I'm not a manager. I People think I'm a, if I can say this, hard ass, but it would have just crushed me to have to tell somebody, yeah, we're not going to include that. So I was just thrilled that as this went forward, anybody who wanted to be involved was able to. One of the things that kind of self-selection process did was create people who wanted to tell their story and it tended to lead towards more positive stories. But we did have one person who withdrew near the end because they were worried about what the consequence might be for them sharing their story. Uh, but we were so thankful for the few people that did share those stories that kind of had, had you feeling negative or they had a bad outcome uh, because they were willing to share that. Uh, I think that helps balance the book uh, and understand kind of the range of those outcomes that might be out there. Uh, but overall, we are so thankful and so so thrilled 
for the contributors that took the time to put these words down and capture these stories because they really do span the breadth that we were looking for of stories, not only across time, but across all service components, enlisted and officer ranks, multiple different combat and occupational specialties. So uh, we couldn't be more thankful to the people that were willing to share their stories uh, and contribute to the book. I agree. I, I mean, even just, you know, as a civilian, I was interested in hearing these stories for educational purposes and, and historical context. And this is uh, stuff that we would not have access to. Um, at least, you know, it'd be a little bit difficult to find depending on where you live in the United States. And nowadays, with all these book bans, I, anyway, that's another show. Um but you know, I I I also I wanted to ask uh, what the organizations that you had mentioned in the book, um, especially like Sparta, what these organizations are up to now. So Sparta's primary goal has remained the same: of take care of our service members, give them that opportunity to connect, uh, know that they're not alone, and really to help them navigate policy because we're still in a world where the trans policies within each military service, not only are they a little different, they can be a little hard to navigate and they may not be well and fully understood across the force. So people need help working their way through that. And we really provide that environment where people can give, give and receive advice on how to do that. But importantly, the advocacy mission remains. Uh, there are still areas in policy that we would like to see improve. And so to have that outside voice that we can speak with on behalf of transgender service members and say, these are some things that are actively harming service members' careers, and we need to do better uh, for them, but also to work uh, a legislative agenda to be able to say, hey, Congress, it would be great if you did pass a forward-looking positive law saying, yes, you can serve, not leaving a void where a future administration could say, sorry, your time's up. Um, we appreciate your service, but see you later. On that note, and I guess a question for either or both of you, are there any political leaders in Washington who do take lead on this, on any aspect of this issue? Um, well, I know there, obviously there are some who have been, been against it, but I mean, positive leadership in Washington. Any, any names you'd care to call out? Uh, Mel? Uh, I was just going to say, Bree's probably got them at the tip of her tongue. Um, and I'm trying to remember. The short answer is yes. I mean, there were people in Congress who were, like Jackie Spear comes to mind, you know, who were willing to be there, were willing to hear from people, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the person that, that's buried in the back of my mind, male member of Congress. Um, but I just, I guess I can't come up with the names. Off, and I, quite honestly, I haven't looked down through 535 names to figure out who's still there, you know. Um, but I think, I, I feel like Bree was making a little bit of a face there, but I think there were people, elected officials who were saying, come on, let's, and, uh, um, oh my gosh, this is terrible. New York. Uh, Senator Gillibrand, you're thinking. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Cause I picture the, I'm picturing the picture with Blake, I think is one of those, but yeah. 
Yeah, there have been a, a number of, of politicians that have actively engaged on this issue. Uh, we had several trans service members as invited guests to the State of the Union a few years ago. Uh, and so there are allies everywhere in both parties, because uh, we truly believe this is a nonpartisan issue. This is about effectiveness in the military and enabling us all to reach our full potential, both as individuals and collectively as members of the military. Um, so we at, at Sparta will work with anyone. Uh, we speak with anyone who we possibly can get into their door to see. Uh, and more power than anything that we can offer is just sitting down and saying, hi, I'm a transgender service member. Uh, and that makes a difference. If I could just give a quick shout out too to not forget governors, because we do have these things called the National Guard. And one of the stories actually talks about having met with and talked with the governor of Minnesota, who was very and continues to, who himself is retired from the National Guard. So we've got, you know, I tend to focus on Congress because we think about big federal legislation, but um, the governors can make a difference too. As we wind down, I can't believe we already spent almost an hour talking about, you know, this incredible book. Again, thank you so much for it, uh, you know. We need all the information and the history that we can get and, and these stories. Um, I want to touch on you know, the hope that Brie brought to the conversation at the very beginning. And so a couple of my last questions, um, you know, if you could share, like, what's it like now you're able to be out in the open and be proud of your contribution, you know, to um, our military and, like, what's it like talking to younger people and being out, sharing this book, sharing your work? You know what I mean? Because, like, like, for somebody like myself, it's like, I remember, though, that at some point you weren't able to serve openly. But young people may not, you know, it's not, it wasn't part of their world. One of the things that's most meaningful to me these days is seeing those young people do amazing things in their career, do so openly and authentically from the beginning. That is so heartwarming to see that they can reach their full potential and just take off in their careers. Um, a great little story from the 10-year the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which occurred uh, not too long ago, was the, the Undersecretary of the Air Force asked for a number of service members who had served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell to gather in the courtyard at the Pentagon just for a, a little ceremony recognizing the event. And when she walked out to see them, you know, she looked at her staff and said, there's no way these people served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, they're too young. And her staff turned to her and said, ma'am, they're all here because Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. That's why they're serving. And it's the same thing with the new generation of trans folks that we have joining the military. For them to be able to do so, to have the military as an option for them is incredible because we need to embrace their talents. They are going to make us stronger. And if I can do anything to enable their success, that is so valuable to me. So to be able to use my position, uh, things like this book, store, the power of story, and so much more to help create inclusive policies, um, 
mission accomplished in my mind, but there's still a lot of work to do and we're going to keep doing it. And I'm so excited for what that work is going to be like and the effort that we have to enable people to be their best selves. Well, I was just going to say, I don't actually um, interact with military personnel frequently, but I am for the first and last because I'm retiring time going to actually use this book this semester in one of my classes. I'm teaching a class called LGBTQ Plus Lives, History, Identity, and Social Change. And we're going to end with a, a module on the military. And I'm really anxious um, to see what students think. What they're, you know, these are people who, for the most part, there's, there's, you know, we're very traditional population. So maybe in the guard reserve or something, but for this, it's going to be new stuff. And I'm, I'm just, I'm looking forward to hearing what their response is. That will be interesting. And, and uh, also, is do you have a? Uh, are you working on any future books? I'm not. Um, I my dean keeps asking me what's next. I'm like, well, I'm retiring. But I've been. I, I've come up with this this phrase for people. I say, you know what? There, a lot of academics when they retire, the only difference is they stop getting paid, and they just keep producing, producing. And I've got other stuff I want to do. But I, there is a book that I've had in the back of my mind. I when I took that break from the military, I worked on wrongful convictions, and I've got mounds of material for a a case that I was involved with. So if I ever do write another book, it's probably going to be that one, but I'll let Bree pitch what she's doing. Uh, he, I, I am working on, on a second book uh, related to how uh, and why LGBTQ folks develop leadership skills in unique ways. And I think it's a fascinating thing to explore how things like coming out, transition, discrimination, shape us as leaders and really deliver this outward focus of how can I help you? It's not the style of I went through some terrible things, so I'm going to make you go through those terrible things. It's I went through some terrible things. I want to make the world better so that you don't have to go through those things. And how does that empower and all of us. Um, so it's something that I am really enjoying uh, diving into. I also have a podcast titled Forged in Fire, uh, which just released last week, which is talking with some of the people we've spoken with for the book and many other LGBTQ leaders about how their experiences shaped them into the leaders they are today. So a rich field to dive into, and I'm really excited for the work we're doing there. Well, thank you both of you so much for the work that you do and you continue to do and uh, incredible inspiration for all of us and our communities. Thank you to all of you who joined us today for this conversation. And so if you haven't done so, pick up a copy of With Honor and Integrity, Transgender Troops Tell Their Stories. John? Thanks again to our special guests today, as well as the Osher, the Bernard Osher Foundation for underwriting our Good Lit series. And thanks to all of you for watching and listening. Have a good weekend.